The Bowery Boys, episode 268, The Saga of the Atlantic Cable. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And we are back together after having a, f- a few shows there with us scattered uh, throughout the universe. And we are so excited to be back together and now spending the rest of the summer together regaling each other with tales of New York City history. In this show, we'll be presenting a story of New York in the 1850s. A wondrous marvel, something that was actually called the eighth wonder of the world, an invention from the era of the Industrial Revolution, where seemingly impossible obstacles were defeated every day. We're talking about the transatlantic cable, the cable that for the first time connected North America with Europe. And it was developed because of the persistence of one very colorful and entrepreneurial New Yorker, a man named Cyrus Westfield. Now, this is a story about a true marvel of the modern age, a cable thousands of miles long that stretched from Newfoundland to Ireland. But I would say, Tom, that this story actually connects to New York City in very important ways. In fact, into Cyrus's own home in the respectable neighborhood of Gramercy Park. For it was there in his lavish brownstone at Gramercy Park at 21st and Lexington, overlooking Gramercy Park, that Cyrus would cook up this plan and gather his wealthy and well-connected friends together to finance this company and this event that was truly transformative. And that would have huge implications on the future of New York City. But of course, this was not an easy endeavor. Mm-mm. This show is also about the the strife and the drama, a real swashbuckling adventure of how this thing was first laid. And it's also, perchance, about one of the biggest parties, a party that was so exuberant that one of New York's greatest landmarks almost burned to the ground. So hold the line as we tell the story of Cyrus Field and the saga of the transatlantic cable. All right. Well, we are very eager to just dive into this story and explain why this cable was such a big deal in the first place. But before we do that, we just want to take a second and call out a very special upcoming event taking place in about two weeks on Tuesday, August 14th on stage at the New York Historical Society as part of their Summer of Magic series. Greg and I will be presenting the Bowery Boys Magical Mystery Hour. And for more information on that show and other live events that we have planned for later this year, just go to our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com. Okay, so back to this telegraph line. Well, before we get started, I want to talk about international communication, how people spoke with each other across the waters in the early 19th century. So let's just say, for example, Tom, you were in Europe 
off on an adventure. Okay. And I was back here in Brooklyn, but I needed to send you some urgent information. How would I go about doing that in the early, early 1800s? I think you would go about doing that with great difficulty because <laughs> yes. you would basically be limited to writing a letter. So it would be a very eloquent, long letter because mm-hmm. I have to get as much information there as possible because it would take a few weeks to get to the destination. Because it would be arriving by ship. There would be a very circuitous delivery, different kinds of routes it would take. It would be very expensive, of course. And in in most cases, it was the letter receiver who paid for the letter. Mm. And then, of course, letters would get lost. So communication with those who were not literally in front of you, communication with people who were not your neighbor, was actually quite rare and special back in this day. Now, there were, for especially urgent messages and for people who weren't too far away, there was another option, and that was, of course, the carrier pigeon, which would be used in wartime and was sometimes used in finance when information delivery needed to be fast-paced. And we're talking about birds here. Trained yeah, birds. trained birds. To carry messages, but sometimes they would also misfire, you know, um, land on the wrong stoop. And they certainly couldn't fly across the ocean. Things got a little bit easier in the 1830s with the advent of the railroad, which made mail delivery quicker. Then in 1837 came the invention of the electric telegraph. Mm-hmm. Now, although there were versions of the telegraph in Europe that were actually much older, the version that eventually became widespread was a design popularized by a man who was important to this story that we're telling today. Samuel Morse. He of uh, the Morse Code fame, naturally, who keeps popping up in our shows because we talked about him in the recent Daguerreotype show. Yes, so he he was a great inventor, a great scientist, and also he was a self-promoter. In fact, in the 1840s, he would frequently go to Europe and and fought to be recognized as the inventor of this device. Well, by the early 1850s, telegraph wires were stretching between major cities, even even as far as Ohio. So, I mean, we there was actually like a really nice network of telegraphs by the early 1850s. Although these were privately held companies, right? So these lines, so if you had to send a message between, say, New York and D.C., you might go to one company, and if you were going to send it to Ohio, you might have to go with, say, Western Union. Oh, yeah, by the way, who Western Union, who didn't even get started until 1851. So they're mm-hmm. not even a player in the story that we're about to tell. The telegraph was hugely transformative for the culture because now with all these landlines linking the different cities together, you could send messages that would reach another city within minutes. And that was taking place on continents all over the world. However, those those telegraph lines, for the most part, stopped at the water's edge. Now, believe it or not, Uh, Morse, Samuel Morse, had actually foreseen this problem that we needed, if this was going to be a usable technology, we need to have these communications stretch over bodies of water, or rather under bodies of water. However, the, the telegraph lines as they were would short out in the water, and there was a question as to whether or not the signal, the electrical signal, could even be transmitted through those wires when they were submerged in water. Well, those are just the beginnings of our problems when we're talking under water cables. Morse. <laughs> Greg is so <laughs> excited right well, now. Well, this is one of my 
favorite New York City history stories. He actually experimented with stringing a telegraph wire under the water in New York between the battery, the, mm-hmm. t- the tip of Manhattan, and Governor's Island. Mm-hmm. And he made this attempt on August 18th, 1842. But the problem here wasn't the cable itself. It wasn't the wire itself. It was just all of the activity in the harbor. Let me quote from Samuel Morse's biography in 1914. With confidence, Morse seated himself at the instrument and had succeeded in exchanging a few signals between him and the other end at Governor's Island, when suddenly the receiving instrument went dumb. Looking out across the water of the bay, he soon saw the cause of the interruption. Six or seven vessels were anchored along the line of the cable, and one of them, in raising her anchor, had fouled the cable and pulled it up. Not knowing what it was, the sailors hauled in about 200 feet of it, then finding no end, they cut the cable and sailed away. Oh. (laughs) So on top of everything else, you've got interference from sailors. I mean, so this was just a quarter mile, what Morse was doing. Imagine trying to stretch it over the Atlantic Ocean. Mm. So many had tried and succeeded in Europe with shorter distances. In fact, there was a 20-mile cable between France and England by this time. That's right. So they succeeded in getting a cable under the English Channel and other bodies of water. But those were far, far shorter distances than the, you know, 2,500 miles of Atlantic crossing, which was the crossing at its shortest. Yes, which was from Canada... Newfoundland, and Ireland on the Europe side, the old world side. There was a Canadian inventor who plays a very big role in the story at this point, a man named Frederick Ginsborn. He had received a charter to build a telegraph cable the length of Newfoundland, and as a side project to that would lay an underground cable off of Prince Edward Island. And why would he be laying telegraph wire way up in the remote area of Newfoundland where, where basically nobody was going to be sending messages? His thought was that these messages that were coming over on steamships across the Atlantic, mm-hmm. well, all they needed to do was get to Newfoundland. They didn't need to go all the way down to New York. Once they got to Newfoundland, then they could use this telegraph wire to relay those messages to New York and shave about three days off the whole process. Uh-huh. And those three days could be a big deal. Especially in the world of finance or, you know, like world-changing events. The problem is, is that he didn't have a lot of money. This Newfoundland job was incredibly expensive. He only got a tenth of the way through the whole project before he went deeply in debt. And he was even arrested because his investors did not show up with the money. So Ginsborn is off in Newfoundland with this plan and this charter to build this telegraph link. But he runs out of money and his, in, and his company goes belly up. Yeah. Well, so he goes back to New York because he needs to get more financing. And New York is going to benefit more than any other place. So he goes to New York in January of 1854 to kind of like shore up some wealth. And there he stays at New York's finest hotel, the Astor House, which is on Broadway just south of City Hall Park. Near today's Staples store. <laughs> It is, yes. But I thought you said he was bankrupt. Uh, How was he affording his stay at the Astor House? Tom, you know what they say. You got to spend money to make money. If you want to meet the financiers of New York City, Mm. you got to go to where they're at. 
and they're at the Astor House. Uh, and did he meet a financier? In a very fortunate coincidence, one evening he happened to be there in the lobby and by chance met up with a man named Matthew Field. Right, because Matthew um, didn't have the money or the wherewithal to, you know, give Gisborne the money that he needed. But he did have a powerful and well-connected brother, Cyrus Field, who lived off of Gramercy Park, who might find his plan interesting. You know, that Field family, Greg, uh, that Cyrus came from, was one of those overachieving families, uh, sort of to end all families. He was the eighth of ten children born into this family in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, to David Dudley Field, uh, his father was a minister, and his mother, Submit Dickinson Field. And how exactly were they overachiever? Did they, were they in a wide variety of fields? <laughs> <laughs> many, many fields, yes. in fact. One, and outstanding in all of those fields. <laughs> um, one brother, Stephen Field, would become a U.S. Supreme Court justice, okay? Another brother, David Dudley Field, was a lawyer who served in the New York State House, but he was actually more famous for simplifying and codifying state law. All the states had different laws and different codes, and it was all very complicated. So he simplified uh, New York's uh, legal code into something that they called the Field Code. And then another brother, Henry Martin Field, was a noted Presbyterian minister and an author and a publisher of a periodical that was called The Evangelist. Oh, wow. I mean, so wait, wait, so we have wait, Henry Field, Matthew Field, Clover Field. No, <laughs> no Clover Field. <laughs> But back to Cyrus. Uh, Born in 1819, he was raised in a rather academically rigorous environment, at least for his elder brothers, who went off to Williams College and had great classical educations. However, that sort of drained the, the family finances. And so by the time it got down to Cyrus, number eight, he kind of had the deck stacked against him. There wasn't that much left for him uh, for his tuition, which isn't to say he didn't get anything, because when he was 15 years old, he did move down to New York, and his father loaned him $25 um, to sort of make his way. And his brother, David, did help to have elder brothers who were already connected, because his brother David was already practicing law in New York, and he helped him land a job in the sort of running errands and then later bookkeeping uh, for A.T. Stewart and Company. The famed retailer on Broadway, perhaps the most famous retailer of the 19th century. A man who sort of revolutionized retailing in America. Yes, he worked closely with Mr. A.T. Stewart himself. He learned all about the retail business, how it functioned, how they dealt with uh, suppliers and manufacturers and customers. So did he use this retail experience to open up his own stores? Well, no, actually, he moved back to Massachusetts, where another brother, Matthew, helped to get him a job with a Massachusetts paper company. Paper was big business at this moment. You know, you you had mentioned writing letters uh, on fine stationery and sending it far and wide. There was a letter writing craze that Mm -hmm. was happening. Not to mention the penny press was exploding, which used a lot of paper. Even banks were using more paper than ever. Yeah, we were not a paperless society back then. We were a paper-full no, society. We were not thinking twice before we printed this email. <laughs> no. 
But this led him to taking a job with a New York company called the E. Root & Company in 1840, the same year that he turned 21 and the same year that he got married to his sweetheart, Mary Bryan Stone, um, with whom he had seven children and was married the rest of his life. Well, unfortunately for Cyrus, the company he joined went under within six months uh, due to financial panics and whatnot. But he was living in New York, uh, where his wife wanted to move, and Fields went about settling the debts that E-Root and company had with their suppliers. There were substantial debts, and he, he worked on a way to sort of like pay them off um, at, a, at a certain percentage. Not completely, but he'd give them some of the money that was due to them instead of just stiffing them with nothing at all. And the next year, 1841, when he was 22 years old, he organized his own paper company called Cyrus W. Field and Company, and he proclaimed that within 20 years, he would build an incredible company and build an incredible fortune. So did he do this in 20 years? He did it in 12 years because he worked so hard. He was such an overachiever. Sometimes he was working 24 hours straight, Greg. In 1853, he went back to those companies who he had settled the debt with, and he actually paid them all off in full. Now, I mention that because it's, a, it's important to understanding his character. He wasn't just hardworking, but he developed a reputation of being exceedingly honest as well, and somebody who people wanted to work with. He had no legal need to pay off those companies in full. They had already settled the debt at a certain percentage of what was owed to them, but he just felt better about going back and setting things straight. I also think it's interesting that he is making his name here in the 1840s as the paper king Mm -hmm. at the same time that Samuel Morse is making his reputation as the innovator of telegraph technology. Mm -hmm. So they're almost, they're working in two different forms of communication. And Morse will come back into the story in a second, but it's 1853 He's only 34 years old. He has a fortune um, from his company. However, he's totally overworked. And his doctors tell him, you know, you really need to relax a little. You need to stop working, retire, and devote the rest of your life to recreation and travel and just kind of take it easy. So he retires to his house that he has built for himself in the 1840s at the northeast corner of 21st and Lexington, overlooking Gramercy Park, really, which was notable, among other things, for being one of the first houses in America to employ an interior designer, Greg, mm. a cabinet maker named Charles Baudouin, who, who did up the house in high Victorian style. Gramercy Park, by the way, is a new development anyway. So all of this was brand new, beautiful townhouses being developed, and this was one of the finest. And notable New Yorkers were building their mansions all around the park or nearby. Uh, Across the park, of course, was Samuel Tilden, prominent politician, governor, uh, and future presidential candidate. Next to him at the corner of 22nd Street, two, two houses away, was Peter Cooper. George Templeton Strong lived just a couple houses down. And right next door... Uh, his brother David Dudley Field uh, built his fine house. They shared a stoop. They even shared a balcony and had, you know, contraptions inside doors that could open up between their two uh, brownstones to sort of join their dining rooms and have these lavish family meals. Wow, that's a close family. <laughs> well, they could also close the doors. Okay. <laughs> now, according to a later account in the New York Times, 
on January 1st, 1853, Field retired to his Gramercy Park home, quote, and he had all the money that he wanted and he could spend the rest of his life in recreation. And he did travel far and wide, including uh, down to South America with his friend, the noted American landscape painter Frederick Church. And he came back in late 1853. So then by 1854, to bring us back to the original thread here of Uh, Mr. Ginsborn. Right. I'd almost, our message had almost gotten lost (laughs) there. Well, we have, we have Matthew Field, the brother of Cyrus Field, meeting Frederick Ginsborn at the Astor House and inviting him over to his brother's townhouse to discuss this idea. So imagine the library of Cyrus Field, the stuffy volumes and fine liqueurs, perhaps, some cigars. Exotic animals brought back from South America. (laughs) Yes, and perhaps some of these Frederick Church paintings on the wall, and most notably, a globe in the middle of the room of the world. So they discussed this idea, the Newfoundland cable idea, and at first, Cyrus wasn't all that interested. But then Frederick left, his brother left, and that evening, as legend has it, He sat in his library, he stared at this globe, and he looked at the globe, and he noticed something interesting. He noticed that the eastern point of North America, which was Newfoundland, and looked at Ireland, and looked at the vast distance between these two places, and thought to himself that actually, it didn't seem so vast, that he dreamed that a cable could actually bridge these two places, that we wouldn't need a steamship to carry messages, that a cable under the water could do that job. But certainly if this had been a possibility, Gisborne or others would have already thought of this plan. Many had actually come up with this idea. So Cyrus Field did not invent this idea. Um, Tom, look at this book that I checked out from the library, believe it or not, from 1866, an old book called The History of the Atlantic Telegraph. Isn't this an an, a gorgeous book? That is a beautiful book. That is a 152-year-old book, right? Yes. Uh, Why did they let you take that out? (laughs) Well, well, that's a question I can ask. I can bring up with them later. But according to this book, it actually addresses the controversy of whether Field might have stolen the idea from Ginsborn. Quote, whether he... Ginsborn had ever entertained the idea of such a project is not a matter of the slightest consequence to the public. Perhaps hundreds had a vague notion that such a thing might come to pass at some future day, just as many believe that flying machines will yet navigate the air. <laughs> the idea was not original with Mr. Ginsborn, nor with others who have seemed anxious to claim its paternity. Okay, I'm convinced it wasn't Gisborne's idea. Um, who, who did you say was the author of that book? Henry M. Field, the brother uh, of Cyrus. You know how they say history is written by the winners? Oh, Henry. <laughs> well, Cyrus had the gumption and he had a fortune, but he couldn't do this alone. He needed to assemble a super team of New Yorkers, a, a veritable Justice League of wealth intelligence and power here in New York to join him in this absolutely extraordinary and ambitious project. So the following day, he writes two men. The first one, the aforementioned Samuel Morse, is in Poughkeepsie, receives the letter with great enthusiasm, 
and Morse confirms that it is feasible to send an electrical pulse through a wire of that distance from mm. these two spots. Very important. Now, the second person that he writes is someone with nautical experience, the Lieutenant Matthew Fontaine Murray, who was a naval officer and a great American oceanographer. So this is a good person to have on your team. And he's asking the captain if it's even feasible to run the wire through the water or if there's an ideal place to yeah. run it. Well, Murray wrote back with excellent news, quote, so far as the bottom of the deep sea between Newfoundland and Ireland is concerned, the practicality of a submarine telegraph across the Atlantic is proved. So it's feasible both to put it in the water and to run the electricity through it. So check and check. But now he just needs some checks, some more checks. He <laughs> more actually, checks. He needs, he needs money to make this thing happen. Well, thankfully, he doesn't need to go very far. In fact, many of the men who would ultimately join up here in this enterprise would be his neighbors. You know how sometimes you go to the corner to borrow a cup of sugar? Mm -hmm. Well, instead of going to for sugar, he went to the corner to his neighbor, Peter Cooper, and just asked for money. <laughs> now, Peter Cooper is perhaps the second most important person involved with this project. Many New Yorkers considered him to be the most prominent. In 1854, he was one of the richest men in America, 63 years old. Cooper, whose name we know very well today in the city through a variety of different institutions. But most notably, Cooper Union. Right. Had made his money through railroad and iron making, real estate. In 1850, he actually built a home at 9 Lexington Avenue, which was a 35-room house, which was on the same block as Cyrus Fields. Just up at the corner. And it was in the early 1850s that he had began work to develop the project that would become Cooper Union. So he's kind of retired and figuring out philanthropic ways to spend his money, but also figuring out fun things to invest in. <laughs> yeah, so he's on board with this. This is like a very Peter Cooper type project. So with Cooper on board, others came very, very easily, including a man named Moses Taylor. Oh, a big banker in town. Yes, a protege of John Jacob Astor and the director of a bank called the National City Bank of New York. This would, of course, be the bank that would later become today's Citibank. Mm -hmm. A couple others joined in, the paper mogul Chandler White, a ship owner named Marshall Roberts. And finally, Cyrus, of course, asked his own brother, David, his next door neighbor, his next door brother, to join the enterprise. So this team of individuals, the investors, as well as Morse and Maury, would be known as the Cable Cabinet they met for several days in March of 1854 in Cyrus's dining room with maps stretched over the tables. It was at this point that they all shook hands and agreed to take over Ginsborn's debt. Right, that was step one because he, they wanted to get that charter up in Newfoundland so their company would take over his debt and, and finish that construction of that telegraph line linking Newfoundland down basically to, to, to the U.S. And then to build a cable to Europe with their new company, the New York, Newfoundland, and London Telegraph. From a 1937 book called Saga of the Seas, the story of Cyrus Field, quote, at first sight, as Cooper afterwards explained, it seemed, quote, a wild and visionary scheme more suited for the inmates of a lunatic asylum than for practical New York financiers. Sounds like an adventure. And... 
unexpected with some serious highs and lows until we finally got to something that would truly, for the first time, connect the world. We'll connect the dots after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So how does one begin laying a cable across the Atlantic, Tom? Well, as you just pointed out before the break, they didn't start with that cable. First, they, they were going to go up and fix Gisborne's, you know, Newfoundland mess up. And that had another benefit. You know, if they could get his company in working order and the telegraph working from Newfoundland down to New York, well, they could already start bringing in some money. Plus, if you look at a map, you'll see that Newfoundland is separated from mainland Canada and Nova Scotia by the Gulf of St. Lawrence. So they would also have to be laying some cable under the Gulf of St. Lawrence uh, to make that connection happen in the first place. So they could kind of get their whole cable strategy wet, if you will, <laughs> um, and, and sort of prove that this was even possible. Try it out. Right. So in 1854, Field headed up to St. John's in Newfoundland, did a new deal with the Newfoundland government and basically assumed 
uh, the old contract that they had granted to Gisborne and repaid with their money. They repaid those old debts. So once again, Field <laughs> is repaying somebody else's debts and kind of building goodwill. In return, the government was granting a 50-year monopoly, uh, rights for 50 years only to them, exclusive rights for 50 years only to them to run their wires like this across Newfoundland. Unfortunately, though, Greg, I mean, Gizmore found out for himself and Field and and his associates would find out that this was a mammoth uh, undertaking up there. And the work was really wildly underestimated because it was... It was crazy wilderness Mm -hmm. up in Newfoundland. It's beautiful there. That's why people go. (laughs) And if the 400 miles of wilderness wasn't hard enough for them, then they had to get the underwater cable under that stretch of the Gulf of St. Lawrence that Mm -hmm. links with Nova Scotia. The company thought it would be relatively simple to lay that underwater cable. And in fact, they thought it would be a good time and that everybody could get kind of excited about this. So yeah, I mean, aren't you just like tossing a cable into the water? What's the problem? Oh, absolutely. So... In one of the more fabulous and, like, ridiculous details of this whole story, in 1855, the group chartered their own kind of VIP society ship to go up (laughs) from New York and be a part of that cable lane party. And it was all fun and merriment, you know, as the company headed up. They brought along their families and their friends. They held banquets and sort of genteel entertainments (laughs) on board. So like a carnival cruise with, like, a purpose to it. The group cheered on as the cable began to be laid in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. But unfortunately, after about 40 miles of it had been released into the Gulf, a big storm came up and things got very dicey. With all of those waves, right, you know, an unexpected thing happened. The cable started pulling down the boat. That cable was heavy, and it was anchoring them to the bottom of the Gulf at that point and putting them all at risk. The captain was forced to cut the cable, and everybody watched as this new famous telegraph wire descended into the water forever. What a fiasco. Because another cable would have to be produced, call for more bonds to be issued, and the chief investor of the project, Mr. Cyrus Field, would cough up most of the cash. This is a cycle that repeated itself several times over the next couple of years, where there were disappointments more cable would have to be purchased, and Cyrus Field would always be the one who had to figure out where that money was going to come from. Because long story short, this was not a one-and-done type of venture. It had to be done again and again, or the attempts. There were several attempts made. Right, and remember, we're still up in Newfoundland. I mean, the next year in 1856, they did succeed in laying that first cable, and at that point, connected New York with Newfoundland. They were out of money again, and they had to raise more money. But now they at least had a company that could charge for, you know, sending those messages from St. John's in Newfoundland down to New York. By the way, Greg, incidentally, do you know that that when the ships would come over from Ireland, they would throw their messages into the water and fishermen at sea would scoop them up and bring them to the telegraph office, Wait, right? Like, like as in like letters? Well, they were, they were sealed in floating devices, but okay. they would get scooped up and brought up in St. John's to the telegraph office um, where the fishermen then would be paid for relaying those messages. <laughs> However, that is the origin of the term scoop for journalism. You're scooping the information out of the water that's been thrown from the boats. And would then be the first to relay that information down to New York. 
so to get this connected to the old world, mm-hmm. um, what do they need from the UK? Well, Cyrus went over to London and he would go there dozens of times, like 50 times throughout this entire enterprise. He went there to secure help from the government because they needed permission to do this. And they also needed some money and sort of like help in order to even lay the cable. This, he realized, was in the British Empire's best interest because they had territories and former territories, like Canada in this case, that spanned the globe and most of the time zones. Remember, the sun never set Mm -hmm. on on the British Empire. So if they could actually pull this cable enterprise off, um, it would make governance from London much easier. And the the British government, to his delight, was actually very enthusiastic about the plan and even pledged money to help out and offered the use of military ships, um, including one, the HMS Agamemnon, in order to help lay this very, very heavy wire. And what about here in America? How did the American government get get involved? The, well, they actually weren't very excited about getting involved because it was a private enterprise. Um, they didn't really see what the big benefit of it was to them, and they, they didn't really want to get you know to meddle in this because there were other companies like Western Union who were trying to do similar things. So, so there was hemming and hawing. Um, but finally, the U.S. government did match uh, the British government's offer. And President Pierce signed it into law on the very last day that he was in office in March of 1857. They also pledged a ship to help lay the cable called the USS Niagara and and matched the same amount of money. And so where did the cable come from? Where was it manufactured? The cable consisted of seven copper wires that were twisted together. But of course, you didn't want it to short out. So they had to insulate it from the water. That was done by a a new material that had been discovered called gutta percha, which was a kind of sap from a tree that was very strong and flexible, kind of a latex type material. So so the the wire was insulated in this gutta percha and then tarred over um, and covered in in, in hemp and then layered with another protective layer of, of wires around it to protect it. And two different companies in the UK produced 2,500 tons of this wire. So they had this incredibly heavy cable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more than 2,000 tons. And they put these on ships? Yeah, well, th- you know, no ship was big enough to actually carry all of the wire. That's why they needed those two basically like naval ships from mm-hmm. the two countries to carry half of the wire each. And it took more than 100 men several weeks just to load the wire onto those two naval ships. And then they actually had to lay the cable. Which maybe seems straightforward, but fraught with calamity. (laughs) But being, you know, the mid-1850s, in this case, August of 1857, as they departed, the two ships departed from Ireland, they threw all kinds of parties and banquets and gave all (laughs) manner of speeches. The plan, however, was that the whole group, these two naval ships, along with smaller vessels who were guiding them, they'd start in Ireland. One ship would start laying the cable there. And then halfway across, when that ship's cable had kind of run out, they would splice the end of that cable to the beginning of the other cable, which was on the second ship. And then they would all carry on to Newfoundland. 
Well, unfortunately, the the first cable got tangled up in, in the ship and snapped almost immediately. That cable was rescued to everybody's relief, and they started over, and they started they restarted across the ocean. And the whole time that they were laying down this cable, they were sending messages back to the shore and to the telegraph station there at the other end of the cable so that the, the, the company and also the general public who was following the story breathlessly in the papers, they could follow the progress out at sea. And those messages continued from the ship and the mission continued for 10 days. They had gone more than 300 miles when the signal suddenly stopped. It turns out that an engineer was afraid that the ship was going too quickly and he had applied the brakes to the ship, which caused the cable once again to snap because there was too much tension on it. And all on board watched as the cable disappeared, 300 miles in, disappeared deep into the ocean. $500,000 of cable to the bottom of the ocean. I mean, you realize what a fragile endeavor this is. Mm. And, you know, all of these preemptive celebrations that they keep having <laughs> throughout <laughs> this whole story, uh, you, you just want to keep telling them, no, 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 it's not going to be this simple. Right. And you see how in another company with different leadership, they may have just given up here. And this was the importance of Cyrus Field because he was not deterred. He was ever the optimist. He looked around and said, look at all we've learned here. We're going to do this again. Um, but now we know that we have to rework the machinery to to pay out the, the cable more efficiently, effectively, and also to work on those breaks. You know, So he was always looking at the bright side and learning from the experience. So the next summer, because they could only do this really when the weather mm-hmm. was calm during the summer, in 1858, they had a new strategy, which was that those two ships would meet in the middle of the ocean. They would then splice their cable together there and then drop the cable into the water and make their way to the separate shores at the same time, thus cutting the time in half Mm -hmm. that was necessary for laying the cable. But requiring some very precise navigation. And unfortunately for them, they hit a huge storm on this attempt, which almost sank the Agamemnon. Um, But finally, they did meet up in the middle of the ocean, joined their cables, Again, after three miles, the cable snapped and they restarted again. They made it a few hours. They kept checking in with each other because now they were connected to each other. They, so they, they could, yeah, they could communicate via telegraph. Right. <laughs> but they couldn't send any messages back to shore. But, you know, they kept saying, how's the weather? How you doing? What's for lunch? <laughs> you know? And then all of a sudden, radio silence. Once more, they had snapped a cable. They had to go back to the beginning, back to the middle and resume. One more time, another snap, and at this point, they realized that they had paid out too much of the cable to restart, that they had actually exhausted too much cable and wouldn't be able to complete their mission, so they had to go back to the shore. Oh my gosh. I mean, this isn't, when you talk a snapped cable, this isn't like a breadstick. <laughs> I mean, this, the, the money, no, it wasn't. I mean, this is dangerous. And super expensive. But they tried again very soon after this, That's right? right. Just the next month, in July of 1858, setting off in their two different directions, laying more than a 1,000 miles of cable each. And this time, fortunately, it was smooth sailing. One ship arrived in Newfoundland on August 4th, 
and the other in Ireland on August 5th. The cable finally had been laid and the ships were able to communicate with each other that they had succeeded. Did this mean that they could just hook it up immediately into the telegraph system and begin sending messages? Well, there was a bit of a delay because they had to literally drag the cable up to the telegraph offices in Newfoundland and Ireland and hook things up and run, you know, they had to run tests. And and that could take days because they had to check the signal, which was very weak, but it was there. Um, And they had to, you know, just make sure that they could send legible messages to each other. But the word spread immediately because they were in telegraph offices. The word spread immediately around the world on August 5th that both ships had reached their shores. And instantaneously, uh, celebrations began in both continents. Uh, Parades, sermons were preached on the topics and all manner of articles written in the newspapers, celebrating the fact that these two continents were finally linked. I mean, New York, as we know, loves its parties, loves to celebrate water-based achievements like Erie (laughs) Canal, the Croton Aqueduct, and for many, the cable here was an even greater achievement. New York wanted to be, after all, a European city during this period. It emulated Europe. So obviously people were celebrating every little like landmark. Every milestone was celebrated with a massive party. Field's own neighbor, George Templeton Strong, in his diary wrote, quote, The Atlantic is dried up and we became in reality as in one wish, one country. Hmm. The New York Times, the headline on August 6th, so that's just like when the... The next day. Yeah. uh, The great event of the age. Immediately throughout New York City, every building was festooned with bunting and banners, flags of all nations stretched across the streets. Back in like on August sixth, <laughs> you know, for the first time, everyone thought, "Oh, finally, the world is is connected." Um, and, and by the way, they hadn't even really sent a message yet. <laughs> no. I mean, the excitement, obviously, what's what's driving the excitement were all those Wall Street investors who who saw this ability to communicate with financial markets and to capitalize upon speedy communications, and of course, get rich. Strong later wrote, moderate people merely said that this is the greatest human achievement in human history. Wow, that's some strong language indeed. <laughs> and the, and the, the, the message hadn't even officially arrived yet. No, the, the first official message, um, 11 days after arriving in Ireland on August 16th, the directors on the London side sent a message to a message of congratulations to the directors in New York. But the real showstopper was later that day on August 16th, when Queen Victoria sent a 99 word message to President Buchanan. May I, may I read it to you? Oh, yes. I don't charge by the word. <laughs> Except just imagine it in Morse code. Right. <laughs> To the President of the United States, Washington, the Queen desires to congratulate the President upon the successful completion of this great international work in which the Queen has taken the deepest interest. The Queen is convinced that the President will join with her in fervently hoping that the electric cable will prove an additional link between the nations whose friendship is founded on their common interest and reciprocal esteem. 
the queen has much pleasure in thus communicating with the president and renewing to him her wishes for the prosperity of the United States of America. Now, Greg, that is how you speak to an ally. <laughs> and Buchanan's message back to the queen was equally grandiose and flowery here. Now, this, of course, inspired another wave of celebrations. I mean, New York City 160 years ago in August was partying. The whole month was partying, okay? Um, the New York Times said, quote, New York went cable mad. Newsies were out in the street like early morning, like on August 17th. Cannons began firing before 9 a.m. Everyone was worked up. By noon, thousands of people were in the streets, August 17th, 1858. Church bells rang all day, factory whistles. There were bonfires in the streets. <laughs> um, notably... Central Park was being constructed at this time. Uh, the whole workforce of Central Park marched arm in arm over 1,500 people down to City Hall in a makeshift parade. Well, that's quite, a, that's quite an impromptu walk. That's many <laughs> yeah. miles to just kind of link up and walk down. But why were the construction workers in Central Park so worked up about this? Well, because the wire, as you said, touched down in Ireland. And as the Times proclaimed, quote, most of the laborers were of Hibernian birth. Some were singing as they went and others were talking about old Ireland and the honor that accrued to her from the fact that Valentia, which is where the, it was attached in Ireland, is in the Emerald Isle. Mm. Cannons were placed on top of the Astor House, actually, and were discharged 100 times that afternoon. Not a soul was doing anything in New York City except celebrating. All of this culminates into a massive fireworks display that they have placed on the rooftop of City Hall. Uh-oh, I don't have a good feeling about that. <laughs> Quote, Fiery serpents rushing through the air in the most frantic manner. Golden showers dropping slowly to the ground. Red lights, blue lights, lights of every hue and intensity followed one another in rapid succession and dazzled the eyes of countless watchers. The top of City Hall was a fountain of living fire for which all ordinary powers of vision were utterly inadequate. Wait, this is starting to sound dangerous. Yes. In fact, the, the cupola, you know the cupola of, of City Hall. Oh, it's, it's know still, it well. Yeah. So uh, it actually caught on fire because of this fireworks display and almost burned the entire building down that evening. They, it, the, in fact, the cupola had to be rebuilt. The city's documents were in danger of being destroyed during this celebration. And the party is not even over for the official day of celebration. These were unofficial. Okay? <laughs> the official day of celebration is on September 1st, 1858, just a couple weeks later, because that is when Cyrus Field arrived in town. Having made his way back down south yeah. from Newfoundland. He was the man of the hour. They're, they marched him up in a huge procession from the port to City Hall up to New York's most marvelous and finest building of the day. That would be the New York Crystal Palace. Uh-huh. On the site of today's Bryan Park. This was the location of America's first World's Fair and a building that would soon be consumed in flames itself. 
Um, a local paper that day said, New York has seldom seen a more complete holiday than that of the 1st of September, 1858. The enthusiasm of an entire nation was expressed in this jubilee of its metropolis, and the era of a closer connection with Europe was well ushered in by a day of genuine rejoicing and gaiety. But one problem. <laughs> yeah. By September 1st, Signals on the Atlantic Cable had already grown weak until soon, very soon after that, but to the lament of the entire world, this cable stopped working entirely. Downplayed in this whole story, or perhaps covered up, back to the, the Queen's message to mm -hmm. the president back on August 16th, that message of 99 words took 16 hours hours to send because they were endlessly going back and forth trying to make sure that they, they they got the right word. They had to send those words over and over because the signal was so was so weak. And again, it's being transmitted in code, in Morse code. It must have been quite difficult just to even get this first message with it in working order. And that was at the very beginning. So after a couple of weeks of wear and tear in the ocean, things had only degraded. And then in trying to fix it, they actually made it worse. The entire length was essentially fried in an ill-conceived experiment that essentially burnt it out. But wait, I want to go back to the, the party at the Crystal Palace and Cyrus Field <laughs> being sort of welcomed back like a hero. I know. What happened? Well... I mean, because we did get a, a, an Atlantic cable, like this was ultimately successful. And that is what we're celebrating right now, yeah. right? 160 yes. years later. It, this would be the basis of the world's first transatlantic network. They would not get another chance to work on a new cable until 1865. Why would they have to wait so long? Uh, this this unfortunate thing called the American Civil War pretty much occupied the attention of the American side. This was not an American priority. And funding would be very hard to come by. However, if they were waiting seven years to play the Cyrus Field optimist in the room, that would also mean seven years of new technological innovations. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, they had kind of planned this before they had the technology really perfected. Mm -hmm. Now, during the war, Field was still trying to shore up investors, mostly on the English side, actually. It would take two voyages to finally lay the ultimate successful cable. The first one was in 1865, and the next one the following year in 1866. In both cases, this was almost an entirely English enterprise. Cyrus Field was the only American on both of these voyages. This new and improved successful transatlantic cable but go into service on July 27th, 1866. And notably, when laying both of, both of those cables in 1865 and 66, they employed only one ship, a much, much larger ship called the Great Eastern, which was finally large enough to carry all of the cable itself. On Saturday, July 28th, 1866, New Yorkers received the following dispatch from Cyrus Field. Quote, we arrived here at nine o'clock this morning. All well, thank God. The cable has been laid and it is in perfect working order. 
And finally, it truly was. His reputation was bonded for all time with the Atlantic Cable Project, although he had invested in many other New York enterprises in later years. In 1876, he was president of the New York Elevated Railroad, which, oh, of wow. course, you know, that was the one of the chief forms of transportation during the Gilded Age. Unfortunately, he lost a ton of money in some bad financial investments and some shady dealings. So by the end of his life at age 72, he actually did not have very much money at all. Oh. He died on July 12th, 1892. We no longer have Cyrus Field's beautiful townhouse, nor the house of his brother, nor the house of Peter Cooper. All of these buildings, all these private dwellings were demolished and replaced with apartment buildings. But there are plaques if you are walking around, around Gramercy Park, stop by that corner, the northeast corner of 21st and Lexington, and you'll find a plaque to Cyrus Field marking the, the site of Cyrus Field's home, and up at the corner of 22nd Street, a similar plaque for Peter Cooper's. On our website, BarryBoysHistory.com, we'll have a lot of illustrations of uh, these wacky events of some of these attempts made in the Atlantic Ocean, and even some photographs of the men that we've talked about in this show. We want to give a huge thank you to the investors in our show, <laughs> our patrons, more than 750 of you who have joined us on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys. Because of your small monthly donations to us, we're able to produce the show in the first place. And we are able to send you exclusive communications, Patreon extras that are available there along with VIP invites, such as patron-only early bird access to buying tickets for things like the live events that we have coming up in a few weeks. So thank you very much for listening to our tale of the Atlantic Cable. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. 